Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places a dive in scuba news. Scuba Obsessed episode 425 is recorded live October 31st, 2019. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jolson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where it is raining sideways. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? Well, as we had talked previously, before, as well as yeah. can be expected today, and uh, in spite yeah. of the rain, going horizontal. Yeah. Did, did is it Was it bad over at your place? We were just, it's, ah. I, I mean, it, it's, this is, I like to remind myself, and Facebook does that for me now quite regularly, that we can have snow this time of year. It had been forecast, and if it had not been for the big parents holding down the little kids or letting, you know, like a kite, bringing them to the door, setting yeah. them down, it would have been a lot more interesting. So, yeah, it's it's Halloween tonight. You've had trick-or-treaters at your house? Oh, yeah. Yep. I had some really cute ones, dragons and things like this, and some of the bigger kids were had one group. They were dressed up in uh, white outfits, and they had that uh, yellow magnetic, not magnetic, but a reflector tape around their whole bodies wearing cones, the street cones, which were pretty yeah. neat. If you hit them in the street, you did it on purpose because they just illuminated yeah. anytime <laughs> light hit them. So I approve wow. of that one from the safety aspect. Yes. Yeah, because I came through Bering Springs after uh, coaching robotics session. And it is when it's raining like this and it's so dark. Uh, it would be so easy to not see somebody. Big time. That's why pumpkins with lights, the little uh, neons around the kids' feet and hands, they show up pretty darn good. Yeah. But well, I am surprised everybody. we had as many kids. Yeah, I I was kind of betting there wouldn't be that many, but in town they had uh, quite a few walking around. So the, well, I still the have opportunity for free candy is pretty strong. <laughs> I still have two good bags of candy that hadn't been. Well, let me rephrase that. Probably not good for my gut, but I have two full bags left of chocolate. Oh, chocolate, the good stuff. Oh, well, you always get five bags of whatever, and you you file it, of course. What you don't like goes in the bucket first, and what you like is number five. And you 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 have it in an orderly fashion. Yeah, and and you only you only have to throw that out there if you if you run out of the others. Yes, and my only problem is everything was chocolate, and I love chocolate, so I was screwed oh. any which way. That 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 that's my weakness too. Uh, you know, candy corn I can take or leave, and a lot of the other stuff, but you know, you, you get some good chocolate. That's yeah, that's yeah. I, I've just stayed away. I have to say, I've done pretty good job staying away from uh, candy this season. So maybe not for long. We'll see. So I'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room. We have quite a good turnout. We have Diver Drew, who's uh, threatened us with some beautiful photos of his last trip. 
We got Eric in there and we also have Karen. So thank you for coming in. And we appreciate everybody who's downloading the program and listening, even if you can't join us, but we do record live Thursday nights, Eastern daylight savings time. And uh, that's on discord. We should have information on our website, www.scoopingfest.com. And you can join us and, and maybe we'll, we'll lead this one off with uh, a Patreon uh, plug. So we could, we always appreciate all our Patreon supporters. We understand if you can't, but if you can head on over a website, click on over to Patreon and uh, any donation that the system registers. I don't know what the minimum is anymore. I think they've, they've, they keep upping it, but uh, we'll get you access, early access to the show and it supports the show, keeps it going other year. So this first article we have, this one is from uh, a Florida-based equipment expert is being charged with illegal exports. The U.S. Justice Department said Peter Sotis, a former owner of Florida-based Ad Helium, is accused of smuggling rebreather equipment without an export license to the war-torn country. The Delray Beach, Florida man was arrested October 29th in indictment of conspiracy to violate U.S. export control regulations by illegally shipping scuba rebreather gear to Libya, the Justice Department announced. Um, Peter Sotis, who is formerly of Fort Lauderdale, uh, is charged with smuggling as well as attempting to violate. And they said that. How many times in, in what they are is International Export Power Act and the Export Administration Regulation, EAR, and uh, being in the business that does a lot of international shipping. I'm familiar with both of those regulations. And there's also another one called the Office of Foreign Asset Control. So you have to, whenever you ship anything, you have to make sure that people aren't on the denied parties list on any of these other lists. And if you do ship something that uh, isn't allowed to those countries, then you will be on the naughty side. And that's what it sounds like he was. Uh, he had his first court appearance before U.S. Magistrate John O'Sullivan in Miami Miami, on October 30th. He is scheduled to be arraigned on November 13th. Uh, Sotis, a recognized advanced rebreather diving expert, was reportedly with Canadian documentary filmmaker Rob Stewart at the time of Stewart's death during the underwater filming at the, along the Florida Keys in February 2017. Allegations that Sotis had violated U.S. export control regulations by arranging to ship high-end rebreather equipment to Libya without Commerce Department export license became increasingly public after Stewart's drowning. Miami Herald reported on March 3, 2017, that Sotis was by then the subject of a lawsuit by his former business partner, Sean Robotica, who alleged that he had warned Sotis that the shipping the rebreather equipment to Libya was permitted was prohibited without a U.S. export license. See, that's what I was wondering, is uh, if he knew that it was wrong. I mean, you know, ignorance of the law is no excuse, but there's many people who may not consider certain technology to be that advanced. Well, if he told them that in 17 and he shipped it in 2016, one, they're a little slow in getting on the ball. Yeah. And if it was 16 and he told them in 17, that's after the fact anyway, right? Well, I'm yes. guessing that what we're missing in the timeline is you, there's really no way to track this. Uh, like, it, um, unless somebody snitches on them or or informs, 
it's going to be rare for this to get caught because you, you buy a rebreather. There's no responsibility you have to the government to register the rebreather with whoever it went to. And or sell it when you're done. Right. So he shipped it over there. I mean, then that was the illegal act. Uh, But somebody would have had, because unless the government was on the other end or inspecting packages, they would not have been able to catch this. So I'm guessing uh, that there is some uh, bad blood between him and his business partner. And even though he did wrong, I'm betting that his business partner had other, other motives. I just wonder if it was more than one. And how do you know he didn't ship it to a customer? That's what, that's just what's missing is how much gear was sold. One unit, you know, or more. That's what I'd be curious about. It, it, you know, the way the law is, they don't care if it's one or a hundred. I mean, any, any is bad. I suppose, but still, the other aspect is since you can get them in Europe and then put them on your backpack and walk to Libya. Well, I, you know what I'm saying? It's like, I wonder why they had to get it from us as opposed to getting it from the UK or something or France or Germany. Guys there, use it. Well, what I'm, what I, I mean, and this is purely speculation, but what I'm guessing, because the, the legal part is it went to somebody in Libya. I don't think they meant that he sold it to Libya. Yeah. He's illegally shipping. Yeah. Cause he shipped it to Libya. So being uh, a, a fairly well-known rebreather person, I'm mm-hmm. sure somebody contacted him, said, do this. You know, here, here's what I want. And he shipped it. And they happened to be in Libya, whether they're Libya National or just that's where they were at the time and they needed it. Uh, yeah, because it's a lot of this is political. Uh, just in nature of, of how this works. You, it doesn't take much because it, it used to be the seven countries and there were seven countries that you couldn't ship to. And in the last 10 years, that's kind of exploded into how many countries you're not allowed to huh. send us to. Yeah. I've, I've, I've spent way too much time at work dealing with this stuff. So, well, you know, there was another item on scuba board about mm-hmm. something similar about them, meaning the same company, selling scuba tanks. And that's January of this year. To Libya? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the well, thing see is... Let's what it says here. Uh, yeah, I think I know. I think rebreathers and scooters are just for toys. Department of Commerce and Department of State feel differently, and they're the ones who count. Don't forget that in 20, 2002, every person was certified by any trading agency in the USA on a rebreather was background checked by the FBI. I didn't know that. Did you? No, I wasn't aware of that. That's a fact. It's serious business. Terrorists are using rebreathers to infiltrate Israel. Criminals are using them to swim drugs across the Rio Grande. Criminals building submarines to deliver drugs to San Diego. All of what we love is technical diving equipment. This is dual-purpose technology, and if you screw around with exporting the stuff to bad people, you're asking for it. And that's that people go to prison for violating the ITAR, which must be what you just said. Yeah, there's uh, there's there's quite a few lists, and they I kind of blend them all together because ship you know violating any of them gets you in trouble. 
So usually what you do, and, and the thing is, it's not as easy as you think. Uh, because what they'll do is they'll have somebody's name on the list, and it might be Billy Bob Jane, and it may be Jane with a Y. Well, you if somebody spells it differently but it says the same, you have to stop it. So we had to write software uh, that would detect misspellings, and uh, we did what we called a soundex where you phonetically – you converted the name into phonetic and then you compared any name phonetically to other names phonetically to see if they would match because uh yeah if it, the the penalties are pretty severe if it doesn't go and and at the time I we were also doing products for uh big large multinational companies that have fruit logos and stuff like that so you can't yeah, they 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 don't want to get in trouble any more than you do, and it's and everybody's in trouble. The shipper, the carrier, the 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 company. So you just you go and do it. <laughs> well, I so. thought it was interesting from the aspect that if that was all done in two thousand two, he's been in business that long, and it's not just him, but countrywide. And then this item here about illegally selling tanks to them is in December of twenty sixteen. One would have thought he'd have been way up on a watch list and would have pretty much knowledge of that and not be doing something stupid that by now I would imagine he'd know is not correct. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I would think so, but, but it, it's hard to tell what the timing is. And then also maybe that they knew about it and uh, we're just seeing if it would happen again. As they're part of the article was saying, and this is back to the 2016 item I'm looking at, the guy that complained about him, uh, he's not in in uh, Dutch with the FBI because he has protective custody. <laughs> oh. So they, since he's cooperating, they can't, they won't uh, charge him with anything. But obviously, if he was a partner, he was part of that. Because well, I didn't know well, exporting SDVs or scooters, that's also an item for international arms consideration. That's amazing. There's, there's a lot of stuff and and some of it's not specific. You have to look at it or we run into it. uh, You know, sometimes we're doing like software, you know, we're shipping software back in the days. uh, The internet existed, but you ship CDs and you had to be careful what was on that particular CD. Uh, There are certain versions of operating systems that aren't allowed to go to certain countries with certain features. So you usually had, uh, had to make sure they were the correct ones. Hmm. Also, uh, because we were, you know, in the print industry, uh, whatever the, depending on what the content was could be. And, and you could ask for exemptions or there, there were certain exemptions, like usually uh, a lot of our customer medical associations. So we could usually get exemptions for their titles to be approved to send. Cause you know, just because the country's bad, you know, the, the dentist or the doctor in that country still wants to make sure he's, he's got accurate information right. on how to treat people. One of the items they were selling on those tanks were, they were said they were non-certified tanks. Now, I'm not sure what a non-certified tank is for scuba. Any idea what that would mean or be cons- construed as? I haven't, I haven't heard that, but would, could that be a tank that, Maybe wasn't could could it because it, 
I'm, I'm just imagining that all tanks. Well, we can do a Google search. We got the, the great book of everything. Because I was saying, you know, if you build a tank, who builds tanks not to some standard? Well, you know what, what I'm saying? wondering is maybe, is maybe like all, all tanks start the same, but maybe the certification. Okay, it says everything you should know about compressed air receiver tanks. It says a non-code certified tank should never be used. Uh, now I can't find it. Uh, so maybe it was a tank meant for something else other than non-certified tank. Yeah, because you're right. If you're making a tank, it seems like you'd make them all the same. Could that be one that didn't? No, no. Okay, so uh, the one of the questions is, is it important to have my tank ASME certified? It says, yes, a non-code uncertified tank should never be used. If a tank is not certified, there's no standard guiding its manufacturing process or testing procedures. So... I, I can't think of wh- why or how. I mean, well, it's like I've taken my oxygen tanks, my old ones, the baby ones. That's what were my bailouts. They're certified tanks for a certain pressure, right? You know, so all I do is change out the valve on it. That's not a. That's not an issue there. Doesn't mm-hmm. void the uh, ability of the tank to hold pressure, right? So uh, there's got to be more to it. So if you if you know. Uh, send us a line and we'd be interested in finding out the show at scubobobsessed.com and that should get to us. And then how about this? article. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was interesting. Uh, and, and it wasn't really obvious what it was about right at the beginning. Uh, take a look at this next one. Uh, we, we've, we've covered this one uh, several times over the years. And it's this giant blob, and then the author says, you'll never guess what's hiding in this giant sea blob. Uh, in a video that was recorded by researchers who are diving the waters off the coast of Norway, a giant alien-like blob appears. The strange object seems utterly otherworldly, but once the camera gets a bit closer, the blob begins to tell its secrets. As the video description explains, a gelatin-like orb is actually a massive egg sac. Its creator, a squid, deposited hundred thousands of tiny eggs inside where they slowly grow and mature into a baby squid. The egg sac was floating around halfway off the ocean floor at a depth of about 17 meters. As you can see in the video, it's absolutely huge. Divers weren't specifically hunting for the egg blob, but were apparently weren't targeting any deep-sea wildlife at all. The trio, including cameraman Ronald Rosh, had departed Rev Ocean Research Vessel to explore World War II-era shipwreck at a depth of about 200 meters and ran a strained object on their way back. It's an interesting sight. The researchers couldn't identify what species of squid made the particular blob. The sack looks like something straight out of a science fiction flick. These big, weird blobs are just part of the squid's life cycle. Once the squid are old enough to fend for themselves, they depart and do what they survive uh, best at the dangers of the ocean. That's pretty cool to be able to see that. That would be that'd be interesting to see that because at first you'd be like, "What the heck?" And I'm guessing by their experience and where they're at that they were aware of what it was. Yeah, I'm taking a little gander at the video of it right now, and 
that's if you saw that, you would be hoping you had a camera because nobody's going to believe you that you got this big egg sack with some alien creature living inside. Well, in, and we all know how size is is tough to gauge and and communicate. So, if you told if told somebody this egg was the size of a person, people are thinking you're exaggerating. But that is easily the size of a person. And the closer on some of these shots, you can see how the, the color actually comes through instead of the little blue-green. I just posted uh, the YouTube part of it. Somebody else could take a look at it, but it is interesting. Weird, but interesting. Now, somebody's going to say, well, you know what that tastes like? I don't know. Taste? <laughs> what? Well, you, can, well, you, can you puncture, and you get a lot of them together and you squish them, make a, you know, an octopus cake or something. I don't know. Maybe maybe like the biggest omelet ever? Maybe. Some of the pictures later on in this video are pretty decent. Because until you get maybe halfway through that video, you can't see all the little guys in the middle of that floating around. Yeah. So that'd be, that'd be fun. Interesting to see stuff like yeah. that. Yes, it is. Saying, what about the shipwreck? Tell me about the shipwreck. Well, they didn't say anything. Maybe it was one that was already known. Well, next we have some Michigan State students alums to turn ocean, oceanic. Yes, oceanic. Oceanic. I don't know why they just looked funny to me. Trash into recreational treasures. Uh, they said, what is trash can be remade into treasure? Five Spartans had planned to convert oceanic plastic pollution to water into recreational fun. Every year, 8 million metric tons of plastic ends up in the world's oceans, affecting 700 million species, according to Ocean Conservancy. When when wildlife like birds and sea turtles ingest plastic cause life-threatening problems, the group of Michigan State University students and alum who launched Tidal Aquatics this year plan to repurpose the pollution into exciting water experiences. They'll start with snorkels. Snorkeling is popular in the oceans around the world. As an avid snorkeler and scuba diver with a passion for the Great Lakes, MSU senior Alexander Winholtz had searched the water-related career path with his final major in entrepreneurship and innovation minor. He wondered what he could do to reverse damage to the oceans, plants, and animals caused by pollution. Earlier this year, he used a class project opportunity to turn his passion into a career. I pitched the idea of creating an aquatics company focused on providing people the opportunity to explore the very waters they are helping clean up. Uh, Wynn Holtz, 21, to Traverse City, oceanic pollution is a very serious problem that needs to be addressed. The class project brought in four partners and provided a jump-off point for Tidal Aquatics, which uses a tagline, Reoceaning the Future. The plan is to release the the company's first product at the end of the year, two snorkel models, a straight tube and retractable tube are expected to be made of plastic recovered from the Atlantic Pacific Oceans. Other water-related products, such as swimsuits and apparel, are in the works. Not only will the snorkels be environmentally friendly, they'll also have a design that increases portability and offers maximum mouth, com- mouth comfort, Winholt said. But Winholt hopes the use of plastic pollution will be a big draw as it provides an avenue for the public to easily make the difference for life all over the world. The group expects to start by purchasing reclaimed plastic from online vendors such as Four Oceans, the startup uh, funding of $2,000 he won from the Hatchling a Business Idea Contest in June is helping them get started. 
we're now on the road to a full business. Title Aquatics co-founder Tony, Tony, I said Tony, goodness. Tori Albrecht said in a Facebook post, keep an eye on Title Aquatics. We'll hopefully be launched in selling water sports and beach gear by the end of the year. Albrecht 22 of Milford is an MSU alumni uh, with a degree in business management and a minor in entrepreneurship and innovation. The other partner is Zach Schneid 23 of St. Joe and Joey Karn 21 of Novi. Both seniors studying supply chain management with a minor in entrepreneurship and innovation. Alexander Galissa, 27 of Romeo, senior studying business management. It's amazing the degrees that they're coming out with now. Oh, yeah. Supply I chain thought, management. Yeah, I, mean, I thought it was interesting. A, yeah. I was going to say, the balloon fragments they were showing, that's uh-huh. from Lake Michigan near Palisades Nuclear Plant. Oh, okay. I posted that in the chat room. That was that you said what? You've I posted it on the site here. Club site. Oh, oh. I thought you meant that you were you were the one that they used your image. Oh no, 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 no. Okay. Well. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what they can do. I tried uh to kind of I'm not so much sure I'd want a straight snorkel like they had, but a collapsible one. Now, that's a different story because then that fit a lot easier into your uh, BC pouch or something if you didn't want to be wearing one. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm visiting there. They're, they've only got $2,000 to get started up. So I think this is kind of just the introductory product. So, um, I mean, hopefully they can make something out of it. But it's the the challenge is going to be is it's it's a it's an idea that people will like, but you still have to have a good product. Yeah. And, oh yeah. And looking at this, I mean, from a snorkel design, I'm not sure that's unique enough mm-hmm. or modern enough. I mean, that's just kind of the basics, but this could just be their initial prototype plus plastics. Um, uh, the, there's a lot of challenges in, in remanufacturing plastic, so I'm sure they're working through it. We'll keep an eye out and see if they, if this ends up coming anything. Yeah, because the big challenge is, like you said, sorting, because plastics of different consistency have different melting points, different uses, and contaminants. So that could yeah. be a real challenge. Well, and and some of it can't even remelt. So it, right. it's all dependent on how it, it was set and what's the process going to be. And even in using virgin plastics, uh, dyes are expensive. I mean, that that's a huge expense. Uh, so, but uh, we wish them luck and hopefully it works out. And then uh, newly discovered shrimp live in a whale's mouth. Uh, amphipods a large group of small shrimp like creatures can be found around the globe pretty much anywhere that holds enough moisture from deep sea dwellers chomping on cold war (laughs) nuclear bomb particles to humble swimmers living in cave streams in illinois these crustaceous scavengers have adapted to all sorts of environment now another strange locale can be added to the list with a new amphipod species going with it researchers found the new kind of amphipod living in the gill rakes of female whale shark's mouth, according to a paper describing new species in the journal Species Diversity. 
while scuba diving in a fish preserve off the Yamaten village in a Japanese island, Okinawa. Researchers used a suction pump to collect samples from the big fish, including material from its gills. Lead author O. Tamakawa of Hiroshima University tells the agency France Press that he was surprised to find the creatures inside the whale shark's mouth, and a total scuba divers collected 357 male amphipods and 240, uh, 291 female uh, crustaceans, and estimated there were at least 1,000 critters partying inside. The creatures, which are usually three to five centimeters long or one to two inches, is amazing because it they can live in so many different environments. But I didn't expect we would find one inside the mouth of a whale shark. The team examined the species under a scanning electron microscope and sequenced its DNA, establishing that it was indeed a new species of the genus, and I'm just going to slaughter this intentionally, Potocruis. They officially named it uh, Potocruis Jinbi since Jinbi is a Japanese word for whale shark, which is the largest species of fish in the ocean. According to the paper, it's not too unusual for amphipods to be associated with one particular animal. Other species of crustaceans have been found living on the surface of fish, sea turtles, and some marine mammals. They're also known to live in other invertebrates. And they go on and talk about some other things. But, I'd, you know, should we be surprised? I, I, I'm, I'm beyond surprised sometimes because you see... Uh, all sorts of relationships between larger critters and smaller critters. When you see what can grow in volcanic acid hot oh, yes. vents, I'm not surprised because what you see down there is like an alien planet. You wouldn't think something could live on an alien planet. Well, what about in those you know, vents down at the bottom of the ocean? That's the same as a freaking alien environment as you can get. Yeah. Yep. And here's one from Australia. Early scuba diver diaries provide new historical view of the ocean. Researchers are able to track changes in Sydney's marine ecosystem thanks to detailed diaries penned by citizen scientists 60 years ago. The underwater research group of NSW was formed in 1956 and attracted only the most adventurous of divers, those happy enough to make their own suits out of wool and breathe through handmade regulators. While the group was originally centered itself around recreational diving, members soon noticed the vacuum and knowledge around marine biology and morphed it in the club interested in helping science. Citizen science has been going a lot longer on land, but the URG is one of the first groups to ever start doing that. Current President John Turnbull said, a business-turned-marine-biology-PhD student. And more than 60 years from the group's formation, meticulous diary entries of early members have been digitized for use in future marine biology research. Dennis Lawler said that the marine biology professor David Booth, the University of Technology, Sydney, approached her father, uh, Clary Lawler, for his access for access to his diaries to help understand the proliferation of weedy sea dragons, he was thrilled to think that this beautiful underwater illustrations are being used at the highest level of scientific research is just mind blowing. She said, and those emotions go both ways. Some of the terrestrial and space researchers are ahead of us in the field of citizen science, but it's a fairly new thing for ocean research and it's really blossoming. Professor Booth said, Clary, especially was so thorough. He went through his dive logs 
and he's been instrumental. Look at those photos that he's got in there. He took some time to draw those out. Miss Laura, now a URG member herself, said her father joined a diving club long before the invention of underwater cameras, who instead uses art skills to draw the species he saw under the sea. Professor Booth has been studying weedy sea dragons for 15 years, while the population is believed to be in decline. There's insufficient data to know for sure. With the help of Mr. Lawler's diary, Professor Booth has been offered a new historical lens to look at the long-term population numbers of animals around Sydney's coast. Looking through her father's diaries filled with drawings of lionfish, anglerfish, sponge, and coral, Miss Lawler said the diving was an obvious family passion, was also for the greater good. To me, this is one of the most, one of the next frontiers for scientists to start to open their minds to use these other data sources and understand long-term trends. The only way to get those long-term data sets is to get creative about what considered to be data and what we don't. It's, it's a numbers game. And we're seeing this in computers and technology is that the more numbers, the better. And you can't be selective. You know, it can't be if you're a scientist, you can only trust what you see in your own eyes. You have to collect data from many sources. Like the size of that lobster he's carrying. <laughs> it is. At first, it looks like a puppy. <laughs> An ugly one, but yeah. <laughs> well, I posted a picture of that one, but see the tank on the right-hand side? Notes the J-valve handle. Uh, and that same one where he's got the lobster? No, the one by it, the red vest. Yeah. The yellow tank, you see that arm coming down? I am willing to oh, bet okay. that's the J-valve lever. I, yeah, I bet you're right. No, you don't have any little uh, ping pong ball at the top of that one snorkel with the curve. <laughs> yeah, that's hardcore. I mean, that uh, so you didn't have a BCD. You did that was uh, that was just a, a horse collar for emergency, wasn't it? Right, with a pull valve. May I always had an extra large cylinder in it, but I did have a fill line in mine. But mine was a navy valve or a navy vest. Looked like it. And I'm sure that's not shark skin wetsuit either. No. Now you had to work probably to get that on. Very cool. And I much prefer today's gear. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah, I like the super flex heavy on the flex. Thank you. It's one of those items I am so used to my SMG, my pressure gauge. I mean, we did it without it before, but I sure do like it. Do do you feel like, yeah, because with the J valve, you 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 pretty much were breathing till you couldn't breathe, and then you changed it, right? Right, basically, you you got some resistance, and then when you pulled it, you you're you hopefully you could pull it, and it wasn't already down. Yeah, that would be the part that would make me nervous if you never knew. Well, you you go back there and you can dork with it once in a while just to make sure. Well, maybe maybe you just needed to have one of those Jacques Cousteau triple tank jobs. That would be the way. Or don't go deep enough that you can't come up. <laughs> <laughs> well, they've found uh, an object that I thought you might be interested in. Uh, I understand it's a sub off the Malta coast. 
The wreckage of a British submarine that sank during World War II has been found off the coast of Malta after nearly 80 years. Marine archaeologists announced on Thursday the shipwreck is believed to be the HMS Urge, which was sunk sometime between April 27th and May 6th, 1942. 43 were aboard the vessel, which was on its way to Alexandria, Egypt, but there are no survivors. Is this that same one? I'm not sure. But it seems to be in that same area. Oh, there's a bunch of subs in that area, though. Okay. Uh, Grandson of HMS Urge's commander requested the University of Malta search an area that was heavily mined during the war. The university partnered with Superintendent of Cultural Heritage to form a search expedition. Yeah, the other one was a uh, wasn't a British one; it was uh, a German one, I think. Uh, the sonar image found the wreckage at 426 feet down, two miles off the coast of Malta. The damage to the bow shows a very violent explosion, indicating the ship would have sunk very fast, giving no chance for anyone to survive from this tragedy. Besides the damage to the bow, the wreck was in absolutely fantastic condition. It is sitting upright in the seabed, very proud, in the direction that it was ordered to take on its way to Alexandria. Uh, this is according to Professor Timothy Gambin. British journalist Bernard Gray was on the urge when it sank, the nation's only journalist to have died in the submarine during World War II. Ceremony wow. here for the site declare it an official war gla- grave. The daughter of Urge Captain Lieutenant Commander E.P. Tompkinson is expected to attend. The submarine was involved in many successful attacks against German and Italian ships in the Mediterranean Sea, including an Italian cruiser Giovanni del Bran near, near Sicily uh, just days before it disappeared. I was hoping to be some photos, but maybe that will be released here pretty soon. Yeah. Now, on one that did get some photos, a World War II destroyer has been located by Paul Allen's research vessel, and it is the deepest wreck ever discovered. Is that true, shipwreck? Ever discovered. That's what they're saying. The late Paul Allen ship hunting team aboard their search vessel, Petrel, has reached new record depths as the latest discovery. Wow. Vulcan Inc. released footage Wednesday, the deepest shipwreck ever discovered. The scattered remains of the World War II Fletcher-class destroyer lies at 20,400 feet, 6,220 meters below the surface on the edge of the Emden Deep in the Philippine Sea. The ship was lost during the battle off Samar, one of four battles that occurred between the Battle of Lake Gulf on October 25th, 1944. We believe this wreck to be the USS Johnston Didi 557, says Robert Kraft, Director of Subsea Operation for Allen's Vulcan, Inc. There's no evidence of Dazzle Paint Scheme indicative of the U.S. hole and its location to just direct sank later in the battle after the loss of the hole. Uh, there were heavy American casualties during the battle, including the loss of two escort carriers, two destroyers, one destroyer escort, 23 aircraft. Japanese forces also took significant casualties losing three heavy cruisers, 52 aircraft during the conflict, according to Vulcan News release. The Johnston wreck is set at a depth beyond the rated operational limit of remotely operated vehicles set down by the patrol. During the dive, our deepest yet, we encountered challenges that impacted our ability to operate and obtain typical high-quality survey that we strive for, said Mayor, who's also a petrol ROV pilot. 
News of the find comes just over a week after Petrol located another significant World War II shipwreck. The Japanese aircraft carriers IJN Kaga and Aggie, both lost during the Battle of Midway in 1942, were discovered. The crew of the 250-foot patrol has discovered more than 30 sunken warships in the previous finds of the USS Indianapolis, USS Lexington, USS Juno, USS Helena, and the USS Hornet. So they were pushing it. I wonder what the rated depth of their ROV was. I don't know, but 20,000 is pretty significant. Yeah, there's not too many who have gone that. I, I'm, I want to say like Alvin was one of the few who was rated that, and that one even had uh, uh, one of them. One of that family had a a catastrophic collapse. Uh, they used glass mm-hmm. globes for buoyancy, and I think one of the globes shattered and it went to the bottom. Uh, but even if so, you have a boat makes- that looks like that, and then you have that ROV. I just posted the picture of what it looks like. You've got a couple of shekels. Yeah. Well, and I'm wondering how long will they continue to do this? Because Paul Allen's passed, and I have a feeling that this was stuff that he had in the works before he died. So is this going to continue longer? I had read somewhere also that this boat was for sale. Huh. So I was kind of surprised when I saw that, you know, the most the last couple uh, fines, so they must still be going. Well, they may have some kind of funding for it up to a certain point or time. Yeah, you had the staff, you had it all set, but you know, at some point, you have the family or the estate has to decide: is that something they want to do? Right, right. So that I, does I it. just went to that to take a look at that ship. That ship has got a lot of stuff on it. Let me yeah, tell you. Well, he, he's been, uh, God, I'm trying to remember what I was watching. I can't remember if I met the person or just had read about it. But there was, uh, uh, I think maybe it might have been either we were at the Chicago show or the, no, it might have been actually Ford Seahorses where they had somebody who was the, uh, uh, was a lady who was a dive master on, I don't think it was this boat, but Alan's yacht. And when she was talking, I can remember thinking, wow, that ha- that has to be a job. I went to the site, and I posted at the .com site for it. And what's really unique about this, when you start scrolling down, it's got the surface of the ocean. And then it's got the digital representation of a compass and depth. And it has all the various ships with pictures they have found. And the first one starts at 384 feet. That one's 551, 600, 607. Six, uh, he's a bunch of them. Ward, 715. Just going to this pictorial is awesome because they've got pictures of everything they found. And this one here is at what? Well, yeah, 20,000 feet's got to be the, is the deepest. Just. In this year, what they have found is freaking amazing. Planning, and you got to look for it. And this, this is a class beyond that. Now, how about this for a conspiracy theory? Like Ballard would have a public story and what he was really doing. Do you think this could be something similar? 
I don't know. I mean, I'm just uh, two items I did not even know. The Wasp, I'm familiar with. They found that CV7. Nice picture of it. That's at 13,780 feet. Right after they found that one, they got the USS Hornet CV8. That's at 17,716 feet. And some of the pictures of the Wasp are out freaking standing. Jeez. Yeah. And if you look at the pictures, then it's got what it looked like before and after, too. Yeah, I so posted it. If nothing else, keep that one, guys. You might want to go look at that. That's pretty cool. I'm glad you hit that one. I'm glad I went and started looking for this stuff. Yeah. Oh, very nice. Well, that does it for scuba in the news. I, di- I haven't been seeing that anybody's been getting any diving in with all this crappy weather that's been. Uh, well, they happened to hit uh, Diamond Lake the other day looking for the uh, potential trash to do a, an ecology dive in the spring at Diamond uh-huh. Lake. Uh, you've heard about that one, correct? I, I heard. I I didn't quite realize that anybody had gotten in. So that must have. I thought maybe they were just looking at the water, but they got in the water. Yep. Uh, Barb, matter of fact, and uh, um, duh. Kevin? Well, well, Kevin was there. Karen and her mom were there, surface support. Uh-huh. And uh, and then they had, uh, I think, a spaghetti supper over at Torres's house. But uh, they were starting the aspect to see what the ground is like around the access site because if you're going to do an ecology dive and you can bring stuff in in a firm pack, you don't have to get all the way out. So sure, people can help you get yeah. gear out. So yeah. they still plan to go back out and do some surveying, and they're looking for bigger objects so they can uh, maybe take people's mind off of moving the south bend because it's rubble. And uh, concentrate on removing tires, refrigerators, and whatever else we could find for them. Yeah, it says, uh, Karen saying, Kevin and Amy plus two other divers went out and dove. Taurus makes great spaghetti sauce. He has fun stories, too. So was Taurus there? Does he have a house in the area? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he lives in the area. Oh, why, why was I thinking he lived in Chicago? Uh, well, I'm sure he has facilities in Chicago <laughs> and in Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah, I tried. I, there's so many things going through my mind. I won't say. It's, uh, yeah, we're, we'll try and Probably keep a this uh, a, a good a good rating. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's got some good stories. If you haven't had a chance to see who we're talking about, Taras Lysenko of uh, was that AT Store uh, Recovery, A and T Recovery, A and T Recovery. Yeah. And we'll have him on the show. He's he's agreed to come on. I just need to finish finish his book. I've I'm about halfway through it. Uh, write up some notes, and then we'll have him come on. Uh, okay, well that's cool. Uh, so good. Somebody somebody's getting in. But the the river. I imagine this rain's not helping anything. That's got to keep it. Other than well, taking some of the leaves. Well, yeah, we keep hoping it's going to be half-ass decent for. Uh... The turkey dive, because we're going to do the turkey dive in the uh, river in Niles, because uh, historically access is easier. It's not as sharp and as deep coming off the, the bluff like it is in Benton Harbor. Yeah. And for newer people who may be doing it, I'd prefer them, and I think it would be safer for them to be yeah. in Niles because it goes shallow too deep. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I agree. That's a we we can we could probably find unless it's really bad conditions, there should be a safe spot that we can get a dive in. Well, and uh, maybe my neck will be adequate that I can get in myself. We shall see. So How about say it? We en- we endeavor to persevere. Yes. Uh, are you aware of anybody's got any dives planned? We, we actually have, <sighs> not, we have both not, the buoys are off the wreck, so that nobody's got to try and skate out to the the big lake. I think the big one right now we're trying to do is uh, get funding to go ahead and get the I believe the Ann Arbor Five anchored because that is a very popular wreck, and uh, yeah. The, the chain length on that would be quite extreme, and I don't know if they plan to do a shore. I'm not sure, but a bottom line up and then a tagline from the line over to the boat or if they're going to rig up something on the aft end of the uh, the wreck itself. Because mm-hmm. uh, eventually that's going to get a little heavy, and she's going to start. I just wonder when she goes, if it'll be a catastrophe. You know what I'm saying? If if the boat suddenly breaks there at the sand level and just goes down, or if it'll uh-huh. gradually go down and down and down, catastrophic is what I was thinking. Catastrophic, yeah. I'm I'm not sure, uh, but they're they're thinking that could happen. It's always possible. Look, I mean, look at the angle. Yeah, yeah. At some point, I guess you know, steel's not going to last forever. There's going to be a day where that's going to go. Yeah. Well, that could be interesting when that happens. That would kind of open up on the whole new type of diving on that wreck. Yeah. I mean, they could do, you know, a line out, but that's a lot of chain and a lot of weight. And, uh, you know, to me, it would be simple to go ahead and simpler to tag it on to the aft end. Mm-hmm. Could you get a couple of big, you know, sections there that are readily adaptable, putting a chain link through it and doing a good buoy. Yeah. And then doing a real good, maybe a decent-sized subsurface. And that might be an interesting place to put a, a telephone booth, you know, or an air bubble. So if somebody did have a trouble, they've got a secondary place they can get their face out of water for a minute and maybe calm down. Yeah, that could be interesting. Let's see. I'm I'm, I'm kind of flying blind here. I, I lost uh, part power. so. I'm all crammed on the one monitor. Let's see. Reorganize myself. Maybe. I have to plug this. Okay, here I am. Oh, juice is back on. Let's see. Do we have a dive safety story for the week? Well, I actually, I do. Uh, it's called Why Divers Die. Part one. Obviously, we'll be doing part two down the road. And it's interesting because they start right out with the big deal saying being lazy, getting fat, and succumbing to panic are big factors. Do you remember when it was diving that used to be dangerous and sex was safe? It's amazing with so many dives being done worldwide every year, so few people get killed while doing it. That's the good news from the most recent incident reports published by the U.S. and British dive agencies. The Divers Alert Network, DAN, collects dive accident fatalities and issues an annual report. For its latest one, DAN observed that American and Canadian recreational scuba divers, meaning their fatalities, were at a 20-year low 
Now, the British Subaquatic Club also keeps record for dives in the United Kingdom, the UK, and came to the same conclusion in its neck of the woods. But still, 127 fatalities were reported to Dan that year, and 43 occurred in U.S. waters. And it's no surprise Florida had the most within this because it's the state with the most diving activity. We can put this low rate of attrition down to proper training, good oversight by dive center staff, and the application of common sense. But of course, even one fatality is one too many. There are ways and always lessons to be learned from the death of a diver. And since its founding, Undercurrent has published significant dive fatality cases, so readers can better prepare themselves for safer diving. You only dive for pleasure, so why risk your life doing it? Some of the items lost at the surface. Divers need to be responsible for their own actions, but boat crews also need to be prepared when things go wrong. As these incidents show, lazy or inept boat crews help to create some worst-case scenarios. In September 2016, Undercurrent wrote that a, wrote a story analyzing what went wrong when five divers were lost at sea while diving at a remote island. They went into the water as dusk approached, without lights or any surface signaling devices. The crew of the Colombian-based liveaboard failed to keep a proper lookout, so the divers weren't seen when they surfaced prematurely, and the boat had insufficient fuel to make a search once crews realized the divers were missing. Remarkably, at the same time this was happening, another group of divers suffered a similar experience on the other side of the globe. This group became separated from their boat in rough seas. They were found after many hours, but what was telling was that one diver later said of the crew, it was like the instructor had no safety training, he had no radio, no SOS equipment, and no way of calling for help. You'd think a boat crew would have double, maybe triple checks of divers back on the boat, pat them down, but they're still leaving divers behind in era. Laurel Silver Balker was a frequent passenger on the Sun Diver Express out of Long Beach. On one of the dives, a lobster dive off of a shiprock at Sad Asanta Catalina Island in 2015, she was last seen at 9.35 a.m descending from the boat to a depth of 15 feet. When the divers returned to the boat, roll call was called. Four divers' names were missing from the roll, including that of her. So those names were not called out. The boat went to another dive site and was noon before the crews realized she was missing. Up to 30 divers searched for her for more than two weeks, but she was never found. And this wasn't the first time the Sun Diver Express has left the passenger behind. In 2010, a court awarded $1.68 million to a Santa Monica man who was abandoned by the Sun Diver Express, floated five hours off the coast of Newport into a boat of Boy Scouts, hopping to spot him, and scooped him from the sea. And just last September, a pair of British divers surfaced during late afternoon and were invisible to the dive boat due to the reflection of the sun on the water. The crew called emergency services and the lifeboat crew coming from different directions reported they were easily visible with both marker buoys, flashlight signals as darkness approached. Comment was, come on dive crews, crews, make more of an effort to move the boat around a bit, scan the waters when your customers are missing. Item that really hurts is panic causes more problems. 
European divers tend to dive deep. An analysis of the British scuba SCAs in 2018 incident report indicates that many divers' rapid descents were due to anxiety or panic. Another high proportion was due to poor buoyancy control from weighting issues or problems with gear, including useless and careless use of a delayed surface buoy. Some were caused by regulated free flows in cold water or divers just mismanaging their air supplies. In the Dan report, a 15-year-old open water diver who was out of practice went out with a newly certified friend who was making his first dive without an instructor. Panic ensued after one diver ran out of air. They fought over the remaining functioning regulator, and the expected fatal results happened. Of the 56 reported incidents of compression illness reported last year in the UK, where deep diving and deco diving is more common, nearly half the dives involved dives deeper than 100 feet, although an equal number appeared to be within the limits of casual computers. 10% were the result of a rapid ascent. 7% in missed decompression stops. If an affected diver can get to a hyperbaric chamber or facility soon enough, the result of the DCI may not be fatal. However, rapid ascent can and can be, and many of those are due to divers overweighing themselves. The example was an inexperienced novice 50-year-old diver wearing a rented BC using newly purchased gear, including wetsuit, when diving with too much weight. Combine that with a heavy steel tank, it leads to fatal consequences. Her, com- recorder, her computer recorded an uneventful dive profile till the 18-minute mark when a rapid ascent from 41 feet to the surface, followed by immediate return back to 41 feet. The equipment inspection reported that a catastrophic loss of buoyancy was a significant factor in her death. Sometimes a combination of problems arise. A British instructor teaching a student unknowingly had a breath, or had a breach between the corrugated hose and wing still style BC he was using. He was unable to maintain buoyancy at the surface, and the poor student was unable to keep him there. The divers who recovered the instructor's body reported that the wing was unable to control or contain any air. And an instructor can get injured if a student loses buoyancy control. That was the case of last April when an instructor suffered a fatal DCI after rapidly ascending with a novice diver in that way. And if that's not enough, how about being not fit enough to dive? There is always at least one mention every year in the Dan or European reports of unfit or obsessed a diver is suffering accidents and fatalities. When we get older, we lose muscle tone and often put on pounds of fat where muscles were before. Living the good life, many become obese, even morbidly so. The weightlessness of diving can be seductively insidious, but the sudden requirement to fit hard against a current, struggle with full scuba gear through the shallows on a shore dive, even climb a boat's steep ladder, fully loaded with weights and tanks, can easily cause a heart attack. And we can leave that for now. And we can pick it up later on many other issues. That's some good stories there. Well, you know, you can almost see yourself in a couple of those. Yeah, I I resemble a few of those remarks. (laughs) 
Well, I think the aging one is the one a lot of our club members have to look out for because we've done so much and we sometimes think that we can still do it. And uh, at least I have learned and know better in many cases not and, to do certain items. And and a lot of that is just, you know, maybe don't go in the current when it's ripping or don't load up with doubles and a bailout on certain dies when the conditions aren't. And if you come up and you're really hard-pressed to swim, drop the freaking weight belt. Yes. Yeah, weights are weights are much cheaper to replace. Yeah. But it's hard to do. It really is. Yeah. People it, hate it, to it, do it. You, you hate to throw anything away. Yeah, I, I've got drawers full of bread ties, you know. <laughs> so I know how that is. So thank you again for that. We did. You got anything you want to plug? Uh, nothing, but we'll be posting the uh, Our World Underwater dates coming up. Mm-hmm. And I think there's some combination dates that several items are having at the same time. So you're going to have to figure out what you want to go to. Uh, that's coming up. Yeah. Uh, we got the Mary Freebed is going on November 23rd up in Grand Rapids. Yep. Yeah, I won't be and able I to think do that's, that. I think that conflicts with. Uh, a couple other events that are going on that same day or that same weekend. I think uh, there's something going on in Ohio, some kind of event, a showcase. Okay. So there'll be competition for where do you want to go? Yeah, I've, I've got robotics going on that weekend, along with a family uh, Thanksgiving event that I'll get in trouble for missing once again. <laughs> Well, the turkey dive should be the 30th, Saturday, so put that on your calendar. Yep. I should be able to make that. I've got that on the list, provided nothing nothing happens. Yeah, that other item is a show in Sandusky, a scuba show. And I think Karen just posted it, but it blipped uh, off my screen real quick. Yeah, Shipwreck and Scuba on Sandusky, Ohio, November 23rd. Yeah. I really missed I wish I could have gone to that mass training that uh, – she went to. Mm-hmm. That sounded like a lot of fun, a lot of interesting work. Well, are you ready for that time of the show then? Yes, I am. I'm sitting down. Okay. I've, I've I'm not eating anything or drinking, so it's really funny. I'm not going to hurt myself. Yeah, you, you know, yeah, you got to be careful. No ladders either. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And Inuit is out fishing in his canoe one day, feeling fairly miserable because he's cold and he hasn't caught anything. Suddenly hits upon an idea of lighting a camp stove in the bottom of the boat so that he can stay warm and cook his catch at the same time. However, before too long, the canoe hits a large wave, causing the stove to flip over and start a fire in a canoe. Not wishing to get burned, the Inuit is forced to swim back to shore, losing his boat and his catch. The moral story is, you can't have your kayak and heat it too. I don't know if there's anything else to say on that one. (laughs) I think we We, just leave that one right there. We can leave well enough alone. Yeah. Yeah. Lead balloon, I think, is sometimes what they call it. So until next time, go out there and get wet. And stay safe, people.